Our scripture lesson today comes from Luke 22, uh, verses 54 through 57. Let's share in God's good word together. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. But Peter was falling at a distance when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. Peter sat among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him in the firelight, stared at him and said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. When I was a boy, we used to sing a song in church that went something like this. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. All our sin, really? All of my sins? All your sins, really? That doesn't sound right, does it? Well, what about the bad stuff? You know, the really bad stuff? You know, the unforgivable things? Is grace really greater than all our sin? What is grace? Well, it's more than a girl's name, more than something you do at supper time. Grace means that God likes you as well as loves you and is always working for your good. When God graces you, it means God is for you. He's on your side. That God always wants the very best for you. That's our God. One of the devastating things that floats around Christianity is that if we try harder and harder to be good enough, then God will bless us or bless our projects. And ultimately, this idea, this false idea, leads to either arrogance and rudeness on the one end or despair and disgrace, disgrace on the other. Now, you can't earn grace and you can't unearn it. Grace comes from God. Grace is free. But often it will take courage and our very best efforts to receive it. Today, we will explore an epic fail in the Bible and how you can start over even when you've really messed up. We are in our third week of our sermon series called Starting Over. And so if you're just now joining us and you missed the first two weeks, we hope you will uh, go to our website or go to our YouTube channel and check those out. And I'm going to go over them real quickly for you right here. So in week one, the first thing we learned is that starting over is not leaving. Will you say that with me? Starting over is not leaving. It's not just throwing up your hands and giving up. Not at all. And we find that when we go other places, oftentimes our problems, well... They stay right with us. Um, The early church and the Desert Fathers, Father Anthony said it like this, In whatever place you live, do not easily leave it. Well, why not? Because the core sins of pride and greed and anger, well, they go with us wherever we go. Because the problem's not out there. The problem's in here with our soul. And that's with us wherever we go. So starting over starts with hope. That there's hope in God's good time, and we trust in God's timing. Many of you may know this scripture um, from the great prophet, the weeping prophet Jeremiah. He says, For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Hope is where this starting over, um, it starts with hope. Each and every time we have to hold on to hope. But we also have to understand that this hope comes to us in God's good time. So if you go back just one verse, it says this, uh, says the Lord, Only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. But it's going to be 70 years, friends. And so for most of the people receiving that message, you know, it was hard good news because they weren't going to see it. It's going to be for their children or their grandchildren at best. 
And that week, our action step was rather than complaining, you know, like the pandemic, there's lots to complain about, rather than complaining, let's help someone who's suffering today. Because when we take the focus off of our pain onto the pain of the world, it changes everything. We actually help heaven come to earth with God's strength and power, comfort, and grace. So that was week one. Week two is this. Starting over is not going back. Will you say that with me? Starting over is not going back. I love the way Dr. Henry Cloud puts it. He says a second chance is not a repeat of the first chance. Nope, a second chance is not a repeat of the first chance. There has to be something different. Something has to change to get a different outcome. So when we start over, we're moving forward. Uh, But it is really easy to fall into what psychologists call rosy retrospection, which is a romanticizing of the past. It's a coping mechanism because if we were to carry around every bad thing that ever happened to us, it'd be way too heavy to carry. It'd just weigh us down. So we remember things not correctly, not accurately. We remember them as we'd like for them to be so often. And that can get us in trouble, as it did um, God's people as they were fleeing Egypt. Look, look at how they remembered um, Egypt. Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? They're talking to Moses here. Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. Did they say that? No, that was not the case at all. They had been slaves for 400 years. They were beaten nearly to death. It was a terrible time in Egypt, but they don't remember it that way. Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians for it. Would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They're scared. They're in panic. And we all do that. It's just a human condition. When we get really scared, we want to go back to what we knew before, even if it was terrible. So when you're in trouble or afraid, do not focus on the past. Focus on God. When you're under pressure, don't focus on the past. Don't, Don't pretend that things were better when they weren't. Focus on God and what God will do. Look look at what Moses says. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. Friends, in your struggles, right where you are, are you allowing God in the equation? Or are you just looking at your past and trying to go backward? So that's what we learned. Let's focus on God here, right here, right now. So this week, what do you do when you need to start over, when you've really messed up. What do you do then? When you've really messed up. You know, not, not just a little faux pas or a socially awkward moment, but really messed up. The first leader of the church, of the Christian church, uh, is Peter. Um, Peter becomes the first bishop of the movement of Christianity. But he struggled at the end of Jesus' life. And the Gospel of Luke accounts it this way. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. He denies Jesus the first time. And a little later, someone else on seeing him said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. He doubles down. He could have, you know, done the right thing. But no, he he says it again, twice. Man, I am not. Then about an hour later, still another kept insisting, Surely this man also was with him, with Jesus, for he is a Galilean. And you would hope that on the third chance, Peter would do the right thing. That he would stand up for Jesus like he said he would. But he doesn't. He's afraid. And he folds. Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And at that moment, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. Just as Jesus said he would. 
And Peter wept bitterly. You see, this thing that we come to that we, we don't really believe that Jesus will forgive, we have such shame and such guilt about it, we're really confused and we're afraid that Jesus won't forgive us. The problem is so deep that even a second chance and a third chance, they don't help because we're frozen, we're stuck, we can't seem to do the right thing. And Peter's problem was that he thought he was better than others. He had really boasted that he would always be there for Jesus, that unlike other people, he, you could count on me. And he said it privately, he said it publicly, he was the guy. He was the one that walked on water, by the way. So if you go back, you'll see this. Jesus said to them, you will all become deserters. This is right after the Lord's Supper, after the Last Supper. Jesus is saying this to the disciples. He says, you're all going to become deserters. And Peter says, oh no, not me. Though all become deserters because of you, I will never desert you, Jesus. I will never do it. I'll be there for you. You can count on me. Maybe you've been there. See, Peter's problem was all our problem. It's pride. And pride comes before the fall. Right? Self-reliance, self-assurance, confidence in himself. Not in Jesus, in himself. Oh, you can count on me, Jesus. I'm your man. And when we get in that spot, just get ready for the fall. Because it's going to come. Because we can't live this life in our own strength. That's not how we're meant to live. We're meant to live under the grace of God. So Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, Peter, this very night before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even though I must die with you, I will not. I will not. I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. You can almost hear Peter's indignation. Oh, oh, Jesus, are you kidding me? I will not. I will not. I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to do the right thing. That would never happen to me. I wonder if you're like me. Have you ever told Jesus, I will not? Now you can fill in the blank there all you want. I, I will not drink and drive again. I will not be angry again. I will not act out and my rage, again, I will not, you can, I mean, you know your sin better than anyone. I don't need to tell it to you. People all over the world have tried to make deals with God and say, hey, I, if you'll do this, I won't do that. And we fail at it time and time again. That's not how it works. And what made it worse was that Peter's failure was so public. It's not just that he had had this private prayer with Jesus saying, I'm going to be there for you. No, he had said this in front of all the disciples. He'd said it out loud publicly. Oh, look at me. I'm going to do the right thing. You can count on me, Jesus. I'm not like those other so-and-sos. You can count on me. He was wrong. He was just wrong. And not only did Peter know he abandoned Jesus, Jesus knew it too. And Jesus confirmed it. You see, Jesus is at Caiaphas' house. And Peter's just outside in the courtyard. They can actually see each other. And what's about to happen to Jesus, to be put down in a pit, to be beaten and mocked and later flogged and crucified, all of this is about to happen while Peter watches in the safety of his lies. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, the scripture says. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he'd said to him, Before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Jesus is looking at him face to face and he's like, 
Peter, I, I told you this was going to happen. Now what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? And at that very moment where Peter had to decide whether he would stand up for Jesus or lose his life, he chose his life. And it had dire consequences of what would happen to Jesus next as Peter watched. See, Peter's denial of his love and friendship with Jesus left Jesus to suffer alone. It's not that his actions had no consequences for Jesus. They did. Jesus really could have used a friend in that moment, and he had none. No one stood up for him. He took the weight of the world on himself. By his choice, he's not a victim. We, We can't paint him that way. That's not. Jesus took sin on purpose to save you and me and all the world. The scripture says it like this in the Gospel of Luke. Now, the men who were holding Jesus began to mock him and beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Well, Jesus prophesied. Who is it that struck you? They kept heaping many other insults on him. And Jesus and all the disciples, they were no longer anywhere around. They weren't standing up for him, helping him, blessing him, caring for him. What do you do when you've done something so terrible, so egregious, in such betrayal of a friend, how do you ever find your way back? Well, Jesus shows us the answer, of course. The way back looks like this. The first thing is to be honest about what happened. You you can't act like it didn't happen. You know what happened. The person that you did it to, they know what happened. You have to own it. You have to just be honest about the real situation because the truth will set you free. That's what we know from the Bible. The truth sets us free. So we have to be honest about the situation and the damage that has been done. The real damage. And we have to work through that. And at times we need to make amends. Make it right to those we've hurt and damaged. The Bible says that upon the resurrection, uh, this is the message of the angels. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. This is at the very end of the Gospel of Mark. In verse 7. And Peter, what does that mean? Is is Peter no longer a disciple because of what he said, what he's done? Is Peter even considered a disciple given his actions? I mean, is the the angel basically saying, like, it's the disciples, you know, and Peter. We're not sure about him yet. No, that's not what that means at all. You see, the message actually contains hope. This hope of starting over. This hope of a promise that Peter will be reunited with Jesus. So it's the disciples and Peter. Let Peter know he's not out. He's not beyond salvation. He's not beyond help. It's the disciples and Peter. Peter is so hurt and so ashamed and so guilt-ridden, he doesn't even have a clue that Jesus is coming to him. William Barclay puts it like this. Tell his disciples and Peter how that message must have cheered Peter's heart when he received it. He must have been tortured with the memory of his disloyalty and suddenly there came a special message for him. It was characteristic of Jesus that he thought not of the wrong Peter had done of him, but of the remorse that Peter was undergoing. Jesus was far more eager to comfort the penitent sinner than to punish the sin. It was a message of hope that Peter and Jesus would soon be back together because of Jesus' love and forgiveness. You see, the special reference to Peter, also maybe because, according to Paul in First Corinthians, he was the first to see the Lord. How about that? After the betrayal, the per- first person Jesus chooses to show himself to is Peter, also known as Cephas. So it's written like this in First Corinthians 15. 
and that he appeared to Cephas, Jesus did, then to the twelve. How remarkable is that? That the first person Jesus would choose to go to is the one who denied him at the last moment. Dr. Henry Cloud writes it like this, when we come to the end of self-effort and give up trying to be good enough, we find God waiting on the other side, holding out his grace to us. We have to give up this idea of self-effort. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus does. He welcomes Peter and the disciples back to him. And the very last story, in the very last chapter of the very last gospel, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get all the way through John, all the way to chapter 21, and this is what it says. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. We would also know that as the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel, uh, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to my old way of life. I'm going back to the old business. And Peter, being such a natural leader, um, watch what happens. He goes out onto a boat. This is probably bigger than Peter's boat would have been. This is the actual Sea of Galilee. I, I took it from our, to- our hotel room a couple of years ago. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a big body of water, uh, but it's not like the Atlantic Ocean by a long shot. It's a very, very big lake. And so Peter says, I'm going fishing. And what did all the disciples say? They say, well, we're going with you, Peter. We're going to go. We will go with you. I mean, Peter says it, they jump and do it. That's just how it is. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught what? Say it with me. Nothing. Because Jesus tells us, without me, you can do nothing. They tried to do it in their own strength and that self-effort, and they caught nothing. See, Peter and the disciples went back to their old business and in their own strength caught nothing. Not a single thing. And just after daybreak, the scripture says, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? He's teasing them. Jesus is, is so awesome. He's like, hey, I know you've been out there all night. Uh, you might want to talk to me about this. I could, I could help you. And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they do. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved, it's John, by the way, in the Gospel of John. And he says, it is the Lord. They recognize Jesus in the miracle of the fish. Jesus makes himself known through the miracle of the fish. And I wonder if they thought about, you know, the the loaves and fishes and how Jesus worked a miracle then. And he's got the fishes now. When Jesus gets involved, wonderful things happen. And what does Peter do? Does Peter come and celebrate with that? No. The scripture says that Peter actually puts on some clothes and jumps in the lake. That's weird. I mean, Peter's fishing naked. That seems odd to me. It's a, it's a very weird deal until you remember that in the Bible, nakedness, like with Adam and Eve, it's not about their sexuality. It's about their vulnerability. Right? To be without protection, to be without clothes, was to be vulnerable at that time to the wind and the waves and and all the things that might harm you. So the scripture says this, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, maybe out of shame, maybe out of fear, for he was naked and jumped into the sea. See, the disciples, they go to Jesus while Peter goes back to the boat. They're all coming into Jesus now, but, but not Peter. He's basically hiding in the water. 
in the same way that Adam and Eve were trying to hide in the garden. The Gospel of John continues, it says, But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. Friends, a hundred yards off in the water, that's a long ways when you're hauling fish. And when they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Be a part of what I'm doing, Jesus is saying. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. Simon Peter doesn't come to breakfast. He goes back to the boat. He's still going back to his old way of life. He's still got shame and guilt. He doesn't know about the relationship with Jesus of how that's going to go. And, 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 and rightly so. I mean, he's concerned. He is really messed up. And he knows it. So does everyone else. So he goes back aboard and hauls the net ashore full of large fish. 153 fish by himself. Peter is strong and he's coming to Jesus. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Now, these boats that they fish in, they were tiny. They weren't big, you know, fishing boats as we think of. They were really small little boats. And so you can see 153 fish would almost sink something like that. Just little tiny fishing boats that a few men would use with nets. So think about that. Peter's, you know, trying to haul in this this whole catch of fish. And, And he's really overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus is alive and with him and in his presence. And what is Jesus' response to all of this? I mean, Jesus could have said anything like, hey, Peter, don't you have something to say to me? I mean, that would seem appropriate. What does Jesus actually say? He says, come to breakfast. Come to breakfast. Come and have breakfast, Jesus says. Verses 12 through uh, 14 says it like this. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask Jesus, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to him and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This this is a big deal that it's the third time that Jesus has appeared to the disciples. Like Jesus is going to be raised in three days. This is the third time that he appears. We are supposed to be paying attention at this point. The writer is really saying, hey, you need to pay attention here. This is the third time. Watch what happens. After breakfast, Jesus turns his attention to Peter. They finish up. Maybe you've been there to a family gathering. Everybody's kind of putting up the dishes or whatever, and then mom or grandma or dad's like, hey, let's take a walk. Hey, let's have a talk. Let's step outside. Everything turns to Jesus and Peter. Jesus uses this language of really recalling how they met the very first time Jesus was ever with Peter. If you go all the way back to the very beginning of the Gospel of John in chapter 1, it says this. He brought Simon to Jesus, Andrew, his little brother, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. This is Jesus talking now. You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Simon, son of John. And so when Jesus starts to speak to Peter, he uses this familiar language, recalling the good times they've had together, this, this whole time together, that they've, they've been friends. And so Jesus uses this language and the format reminiscent of Peter's triple denial. Even the things Jesus says and the way Jesus says them, Peter understands what Jesus is doing. That he's giving him a second chance and a third chance, as he does for you and for me. 
It's a beautiful thing. The scripture says this, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, just like he did the first time, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That had to sting more than these. You remember back when Peter said, oh, I love you more than these. All these are going to desert you, not me. And Jesus like, I remember Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says to him again, feed my lambs. And a second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And then Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt. Well, of course he did. Of course he did. He, he knows what he's done. He, he knows that he uh, denied him three times. He knows that the cock crowed. I mean, he, he lived through that. He is... He's got nowhere to stand. I mean, Jesus has him. He's, he's exactly right. He feels hurt because Jesus said to him the third time, Do you love me? And Peter says to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Now you'll notice that Jesus had just fed him. Jesus had just fed the disciples and now he's inviting him to feed others, to continue in his life. Jesus is inviting Peter to do what he's always asked him to do, to follow me. Jesus is giving Peter a second chance to lay down his life for Jesus, to give everything that he's given in the same way that Jesus has given his life for him and for the world. And this time, Peter takes it. Peter succeeds. Peter becomes the leader of the Christian movement and, as Jesus foretold, was crucified. But Peter, the tradition says, um, somewhere between about 54 and 58, uh, scholars believe, was crucified. But Peter said, no, I am not worthy to be crucified in the same way as my master and savior Jesus. I want you to crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same way as Jesus. This He got a second chance. And he did it. He made it right through Jesus' love, forgiveness, and strength. And friends, in the end, the invitation to Peter and to all of us, from the beginning and to the end, has always been, follow me. What does Jesus want you to do? Say it. Follow me. That's that's all Jesus is asking, for you to do the things that he does. When Jesus washes feet, he says to the disciples, you call me master and Lord. That's right. So wash feet. Peter, I'm feeding you. If you really love me, put your love into action and feed others, care for others, tend my sheep. And Peter does, this time. So as Christians, friends, our confidence is not in ourselves. It's not self-assurance. It's not self-confidence. No, our confidence is in Christ, in Jesus, the risen one, our Savior. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians like this, not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our competence is from God. It's this grace. Grace is unmerited favor. You you can't earn it. It it means much more than God has forgiven you. Much, much more. Dr. Cloud writes it like this. More than the absence of his wrath, grace is also the presence of his favor freely given to you. When God favors you or graces you, it means he's for you. God is on your side. Of course, Paul writes to the early church in Rome, what then are we to say about these things? This is the good news, friends. If God is for us, 
I mean, you just put an ellipse there. It doesn't, no, I mean, nothing matters after that. If God is for us, the maker of the sun and the moon and the stars, who is against us? It doesn't matter because God is for you. Jesus is for you. Jesus graces you. Jesus loves you and gives you a second chance and a third chance and again and again and again. So our action steps, friends, for this week. I want you to remember that feeling when you did exactly the thing that you told Jesus you would not do, that you would never do it again. But you did. Because we do. Because we're mortals. We're not gods. I want want you to remember that feeling. I want you to remember what, what that's like and how painful that is. But I don't want you to carry it another minute, friends. I want you to give it to Jesus to confess our sins and God is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So give it to him. Give it to Jesus and let it go. It's a new day and Jesus has breakfast waiting for you, friends. He's not mad at you. He's cooking you pancakes for Pete's sake. Come on. It was a beautiful thing. You don't need to be weighed down from this not one minute longer. Be free in Christ. And now that Jesus has fed you, Put your love for Jesus into action by feeding others. That's what he says. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, tend my flock. If you love me, serve your neighbor. Love them as you love yourself. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the resurrection. And we thank you that even when we have messed up as badly as we possibly can, that you come to us and you love us and you invite us again to follow you. And we thank you for all of it and that you've even taught us how to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.